I have not had the joy to meet you. My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. Would you guys all do me a huge favor? I don't want to fall into that pool, so um, if I meander, just yell my name. And uh, um, So we have some baptisms at the end of the service. Both services actually very, very excited for um, those um, people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. So excited for that, so stick around because after the message, we're going we're gonna to celebrate that. Today, we're starting a new series in the book of John. It's going to be in the book of John, chapters 7 through 10. And uh, simply, the series is called Jesus versus evil. And for Jesus, the personification of evil was bound up in one group of people. It's called the Pharisees. What's interesting is the Pharisees, if you've been around for a little while, it's like no surprise to you that they are the antithesis to Jesus, and they are regularly opposing him. In fact, what is their singular agenda with Jesus of Nazareth? It is to end his life. They are conspiring, and they are building the masses, getting them ready to ultimately turn against Jesus so that they might kill him. Jesus, at the end of the day, stands as a threat to, his, to their power, to their influence, to their resources. And here's what they know. If, if they can get rid of Jesus, then the biggest threat to everything that matters most to them can be, can be eradicated. For us, it has never been more important to discern evil. And so what I want to make sure in this series is that every one of us as followers of Christ have the tools to discern evil when we see it. And so there's a lot more to come over the next few weeks as we work through these chapters. But what I want to do is I want to share with you the two primary tools of evil or in the arsenal of evil. The first tool seeks to exploit our hearts. And it is the tool of fear, fear of speaking up, fear of standing out, fear of losing important things like your reputation or your job or worse, your marriage, or your children, or your dreams, or your 401k, or your life. And so what evil seeks to do is to control your heart through fear. So as believers, anybody propagating fear, we step back and go, that's an interesting methodology to use to control and move my behavior. It doesn't matter where you see it. If parents use fear, if the government uses fear, we just step back and say, is this being used of evil for one way or another? Fear is a red flag. It's not always bad. But we step back and we say, why this? What's going on around us? And, and I want you to hear me when I say this. I probably should just put it on the screen to make it even more clear. But if that which you love the most can be controlled by evil, you will be controlled. I, let me give you an example. Why can most dogs be tamed? because we control their food, their greatest desire. Let me say it again. If that which you love the most can be controlled by evil, you will be controlled. Let me, let me tell you the net result that I would love to see at Village Church from this sermon series. That anything competing for your heart's primary affections would just take like last place. That God would be first. Because if you put anything in front of God, you are now giving evil something to control. And so here, here's what is first in the believer's heart. My affections, my passion, my love, my heart's primary passion is Jesus Christ. It is God. 
Then it's my spouse. Then it's my kids. Then it's my people. And then I don't care what you put fifth, by the way, because if you get one, two, and three, and four right, anything else can go there as long as it stays like number five and below. God, spouse, kids, my people, everything else. And you can't put them out of order, can you? Because the moment something goes above God, you are now able to be tempted and controlled by evil. And this is what we want. We want you to bring God glory. I want you to, I want you to live the full life that is in Christ. And that requires, like this is like 101, God must be first but our hearts are wicked. Mine is, I don't know about yours. Rumor has, I know a lot of you. I'm like, yeah, we're pretty much all broken by sin. And the amount of things that are wanting to get first place, it's unbelievable. And, and I need you to know this. If evil can control it, it can control you. You know what it can't control? It can't control God because God is overall. And so I want to make sure he is number one in my life no matter what. Here's the second tool of evil. And it's used not against your heart, but against your mind. And it's propaganda. Now, if you've been around, again, you've heard me use this term a lot. Let me simply define it. Propaganda is disinformation masquerading as truth. And it's designed on purpose, by the way. Propaganda is designed to increase doubt in the truth. That's its whole goal. That is its entire agenda. And what you need to be aware of is that there are mechanisms above all of us that do not want you to know truth. In fact, assumed in this entire title is that there is evil and there is good in the world. That there is Jesus Christ, the King of kings, God in the flesh, and there is also Satan, the prince of the power of the air. And these forces are at work. Now, thank God we know the end of the story. Who wins? In case you haven't read the Bible, his name is Jesus who will usher in everlasting peace and judge the wicked and give grace to all of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who will give us resurrection bodies. These aren't fairy tales or mythology. This is the cry of the human heart. But even the sermon title just assumes that there's something huge going on behind the scenes. And there is. And propaganda is a very real thing, and we're going to dig into this, but I want to show you how propaganda works. It's very simple if you have eyes to see it. Pop propaganda creates false options that trick the foolish. And you're going to notice, as you observe humanity, the masses are foolish, are we not? But when the masses, the fools, are tricked, it gives the appearance, the perception of legitimacy. It, let me tell you one of the worst things that cultures and people can say. Well, everybody can't be wrong, can they? Yes, they can. But when the masses, when the fools all buy hook, line, and sinker, yes, propaganda, whatever you say, it gives the appearance of legitimacy, even though it's completely false. Then it moves on. It provides uncertainty for the masses. Well, if all these people believe this, well, how do I know this is true? And, and then here's how it ends up. It results in doubt in the simple, basic truth standing right in front of your face. This is the whole goal. At the end of the propaganda machine is that what is so basic and true and simple is no longer clear and easy, and you don't know what to believe. That is the goal. Now, turn with me to John chapter 7. We're going to watch evil at work. We're going to watch fear, and we're going to watch propaganda, and it is all designed in the supernatural realm to ultimately end in the murder of Jesus of Nazareth. But who is above evil? Who actually like, like allows, ordains, or permits all things for the ultimate good of all people? His name is God, the Father, who is in control of everything. And so even what you're going to see is even evil at its best still can't beat God. Praise the Lord for that. In John chapter 7, we are six months past John chapter 6. Do you guys remember last week's sermon where Jesus said, eat my body, drink my blood, all that? That was six months ago. 
And here's what's interesting about John 7. We are only six months away from the cross. John's, I think, 22 chapters long. We're only on chapter 7, and we're six months away. And so here's what happens in the book of John. The closer you get to the cross, the opposition, the antagonism, it grows. And the closer you get to the, the cross, the smaller the group of Jesus followers get until you're actually sitting at the foot of the cross, and it's Mary, Mary, and John, and that's it. Where's everybody else? And so as John gets us closer and closer, you're watching evil rise up. You're watching the Pharisees get more control. They're going to be leveraging fear and propaganda. Jesus' followers are going to be getting smaller and smaller and smaller because their hearts through this entire process are going to be exposed. Jesus' reputation has been dragged through the mud, and it is at times exhausting to read. If you're just kind of reading through the book of John, it's actually frustrating. Now, in John 7, there's like three groups of people I want you to be aware of, and each of these groups of people are in antagonistic to Jesus. Uh, number one, I just call them the evil Pharisees. Um, I think we can like, agree that if somebody, a group of people are conspiring to secretly execute and murder somebody who's innocent, would we call that evil? I think so. We're going to say yes. Okay, good. Number two, you have the duped crowds. This is the masses, and they're just so probably unintentionally influenced by the Pharisees' propaganda and messages about Jesus. But then the third group we're going to find ourselves dealing with are Jesus's unbelieving brothers or half-brothers. And I think of all the people, like, okay, I get it. The Pharisees hate me. I'm a threat to their power. Fine, you want to kill me? Fine, get it. The crowds, all right, I'm used to the masses being duped and just buying hook, line, and sinker into whatever, whatever the propaganda machine tells us to believe. Got it. But my brothers? Now, this is where the text gets personal because what... What I think John wants you to see is that everyone is abandoning Jesus. So look at John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would no, not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, verse 2, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. A booth is a tent or a tabernacle. And the irony that John is just setting up for you in this context is that in the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, here's what you're celebrating. You're celebrating that when the Jews were in the wilderness, the presence of God was with them, fire by night, cloud by day. And the irony not missed on any believer in the first century reading the book of John is, it's interesting that they're celebrating the presence of God in their midst while rejecting the presence of God in their midst, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And so there, there's an irony to all of this that the discerning first century Jew who knows these cultural moments would understand. So we get to verse three, and here's the dialogue. It shifts. It goes to Jesus and his brothers. And John wants you to know exactly where they stand with their brother. It says, so his brother said to him, leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you were doing. Okay, what's, what's waiting for Jesus in Judea, by the way? Death. The Pharisees who want to kill him. So why are his brothers telling him to go to Judea? Well, their stated reason is that, that, that your disciples, they're not putting themselves in that group, that they might see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret, little bro, big bro, sorry. If he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse five says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Okay, I get the Pharisees. They get the crowds. But, but I want to know this. What is motivating Jesus' brothers? Why are they telling their brother to go to the place where the people who want to kill him are? 
And why are they telling him to go do the very things that are making the people want to kill him, but only to do more of them? So in our, in our preaching prep, if you don't know, we uh, prepare our sermons. There's three, three churches total that usually about 80% of the time preach the same sermon series. We have a group of anywhere from uh, three to eight or nine or 10 of us who prepare our sermons throughout the week. And then all the pastors, we swap notes. It's a blast. Well, we got hung up on a few things this week. One of the things that we got hung up on is what was the brother's motivation? So we, we surmised, and then I'm going to tell you what I think, and, and I think I'm right, and I'm going to prove it to you. All right. Maybe they're just sick of Jesus. I mean, could you imagine growing up, like, let's be honest, he was Mary's favorite, right? Come on. And imagine growing up with the stories, shepherds and kings and miracles and angels and Elizabeth and John the Baptist and blah, blah, blah. imagine like you're in this you're in this state that really that really could be it I, I imagine my personal opinion uh, in Jesus's bedroom had he had one over the corner of the hut he lived in I don't know but there's like a little table and on it is gold frankincense and myrrh and he always points to it like but did you get that oh no okay fine now I doubt he did that but that's my little as, as a brother I have three older brothers anyways maybe they're angry Maybe they're angry because they're half-brothers. And what's interesting is you go, go throughout the, most of the Old Testament, half-brothers hate their half-brothers. In fact, they try to kill them. Uh, you think about Joseph. You know, all these just instances where these brothers who are just at each other's throat. And so maybe, maybe it's the half-brother syndrome. And we see this in real life. Like half-siblings have this duke-out war, even though they share a common parent. It's not uncommon. There's another option. Maybe they're true seekers, Maybe, maybe they really believe if they saw more signs that maybe they're like, maybe he is God in the flesh. Maybe he is the Messiah. Maybe he is the chosen one. Maybe they're just like the crowd. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Do more miracles. We want to see more. Just entertainment. Maybe they're being sarcastic and they don't believe in him and they think he's crazy. They're like, our brother is Looney Tunes. Yeah, I want to go do more miracles, man. Or maybe, and I think worst of all, maybe his brothers are basically Pharisees. Maybe they've bought in not just into the doctrine of the Pharisees, but into the propaganda of the Pharisees, and now they're perpetuating false ideas about who Jesus is because their minds and their hearts are hard toward their brother. So for John, there's a word here, which is they disbelieved. And disbelief in John is considered rejection. It's not simply skepticism. Like when we use the word disbelief, it's actually seen as as like an honorable thing. I'm struggling to believe. I'm working through it. And those are all understandable things. But in the book of John, disbelief is a decision of rejection, not just skepticism. And so what you need to understand when, when, when John says that the brothers didn't believe, he's actually communicating that they have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. That he, they have rejected the story or the self-identification that Jesus is making about himself. And so Jesus' response, actually in verse 6, uh, pretty much tells us what's going on in the brother's heart. Verse 6, Jesus says to them, this is a little confusing, so let's just, let's just think through this, right? My time has not yet come, and his time is his designated to die. Designated time to die, which is going to be Passover, six months later. But your time, it's always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Wait a minute. Did Jesus just imply that the brothers are evil? Do you see it yet? 
Oh, he most certainly did. Let me show you. Later in the book of John, John chapter 15, listen to what he says. And you should, you should know this if you read a little bit of scripture here. John chapter 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it hated me first. It hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Why does the world not hate Jesus' brothers? Because they're of the world. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. When Jesus looks at the brothers, go back to John 7, when he looks at the brothers and says, the world doesn't hate you, it's because they're of the world. He's actually insulting his brothers in this moment. Let me translate what he's saying. Brothers, the world is run by the devil. It only hates people who have the guts to call evil for what it truly is. You will never do it because you are either evil yourselves or too weak to call out the evil that you see. They're basically the world. Now, Jesus' brothers have made an informed decision. They would rather have their lives and their reputation than stick out their neck for their half-brother, Jesus. One of the hardest lessons I've ever had to learn about evil is that those who watch evil and don't say anything about evil are also guilty of evil. Now, I've told you bits and pieces of the story. I was 17 years old, and I got arrested. It was a not great moment in the history of Michael Fueling. I got arrested for breaking and entering, and here's what happened. It's called, the police call it garage hopping. So at night, you go, and people's garage doors are left open. You go in, you take stuff out. Nobody knows. They're like, one day, a week or two later, oh, where's my golf clubs? And then they have no idea. So I, being a good kid, was like, I'm not going. So I got in the car, and two of my buddies, they would go into garages, and I would usually sit in the car. Well, this time, I got out of the car, and I sat on the bottom of the driveway, just sat there. And I look out, and my friends run. And then a third person runs. And I'm like, that's not good. So I, inevitably, through a series of events, get back to my car. What I did not know happened is that not only were my friends caught, but they ratted me out and told the police where my car was about a mile away. So when I got to the car, the police were waiting for me in the car. I get in the car, as I'm cuffed and arrested, let's be clear, and I remember the conversation so vividly with the police officer because here's, here's roughly how it went. I didn't do it. He says, sure, that's what they all say. And I say, no, for real, I didn't do it. Like, they went in, and I didn't go in. I even told them not to do it. And he says, can I tell you a story? And I said, sure. Like, what are you going to do? No, don't talk to me. <laughs> he says, I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that all your friends decide to go kill somebody, and you just go there and watch. Are you guilty? And I was like, oh, whoa, that's a really good point. Like, I, I didn't even process it like that. Like, you're not, you're not as guilty as doing the crime, but you're still guilty. So if I sit there and watch someone get murdered, and I just say, well, I didn't do it, then apparently I'm guilty. Well, there's something about Jesus' brothers here that we're learning that evil isn't just about what you do, it's also about what you don't do. And Jesus clumps his brothers into this category of the world loves you because you're just like it. And the people who, and, the, and the spirits that control the world, they actually applaud you because you're under their control. May it never be said of a single one of us 
that we have been so duped that we are now under the control of the prince of the power of the air and his ridiculous schemes through fear and propaganda. May we, may we have eyes to see and discern what is right in front of us. Verse 9, after saying this, he, Jesus, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, but not publicly, but in private. Why? Because his time had not yet come yet. And then it says the Jews were looking for him. Do you see the evil in their heart? They are hunting down Jesus. This is the time to glorify God, right? Imagine, let me give you an analogy. It's Easter Sunday, and the pastor is supposed to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus after his atoning death for our sins. But secretly, I'm up here looking for someone because I need to coordinate their execution. Would you basically say that I've missed the complete point? 100%. And that's what's happening with these Pharisees. They are supposed to be leading and facilitating the people of God to celebrate the presence of God in their midst. And they are using this as a cover to find so that they might execute Jesus of Nazareth. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? They're looking everywhere. Verse 12, there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said he's leading people astray. What do we know? As you're reading this, it feels like nobody gets it. So, so to date, Jesus has already told the crowds and people over and over again who he is. He's called himself the Son of God, the Bread of Life, the Son of Man, the Holy One of Israel. John's called him the Lamb, Lamb of God. The list goes on and on. Has Jesus been subtle about who he is? Not in any way, shape, or form. He has not hid his truest identity from anyone at all. And yet the people, are they're, they're muttering. And this idea of muttering is that it's a negative terminology. They're grumbling amongst themselves. And what it seems is happening is that what they're doing is they're propagating the propaganda of the Pharisees to the masses. This is part of, part of how it works. But verse 13 tells us why. And I want you to take note, and it might be one of the most important verses in John 7. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Remember, evil seeks the compliance of the masses in two ways. Number one is propaganda designed to increase doubt. And then number two, it's to tap into your fear mechanism so that that which you love more than God can be controlled. And what did these masses, these crowds love more than God? I don't know, their reputation, their money, their life, their family, their role in society, their jobs. Who knows? The Pharisees had access and control over almost all of it. So in the, in the first century, what you found is there's, well, there's a writing that went before that. It's called the Talmud, and it's sort of like the book of law for the Pharisees that's other than the Bible, and it tells them how they're supposed to act in various certain circumstances. And did you know that you could stone someone to death, according to the Talmud, for disinformation or for causing some kind of conspiracy or doubt in people? Did you know that? And so now what the Pharisees have done is they said, no, Jesus is the one. He's actually spreading lies. He's creating problems. So now we don't want to just kill him, but the people intuitively understand if I affiliate with Jesus and defend him, I too might be guilty and worthy of being stoned. Do you see the fear amongst the people? And here's the dumb thing. So frustrating. He literally is the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, of booths, of tents. He is God in their midst. And look what the disinformation campaign has done. 
It has now caused the simple, obvious truth. You have a guy doing unbelievable miracles in the name of God, fulfilling every stinking prophecy you can imagine. It is so obvious. And because of all the disinformation, the people go, how can we know it's true? He's probably just a good guy. The Pharisees said this. I mean, all the fools of the crowd said he's not the Messiah, so he couldn't be because could everybody be wrong? Do you see how this works? What is so simple and obvious is now confusing, and this is what it does. Now, what I want to do is I want to shift to our, our so what's, and I have three for you. Number one, if you know how evil works, it is so much easier to discern. Most people don't have vocabulary for how evil works. So what I want to do is I want to show you how social evil emerges. Now, we all know that evil emerges out of the human heart. Are we not capable of designing really terrible things? Yes. But there are special kinds of evil that were designed in different ways. Social evil emerges in five functional phases, and this is important for you to watch. Phase number one is demonic ideas are developed. We'll also call this propaganda. Um, Most people are unaware of how the spiritual realm, the physical realm actually work. We're unaware that there is a darkness that is run by Satan himself, that his only aim, as Jesus later in John says, is to steal and to kill and destroy. He has been given over in his heart, if you will, completely over to evil so that every impulse of his heart is to steal, it is to kill and to destroy. He is in rebellion against God. But we also learn in scripture is that the demonic realm is actually responsible for some of the most nefarious ideas in the world. Let me just read to you 1 Timothy chapter 4. Timothy says this, Paul's talking to Timothy, he says, the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars, whose consciences are seared, meaning there are filthy liars out there who have no heart and soul, and their conscience is seared, and their doctrine and ideas come straight from the pit of hell, and now they are propagating them, and I'm going to show you how and why this works. Satan is called the father of lies, not simply because if he communicates to you, he lies, but because he is the creator of some of the most insidious lies the world has ever seen. Let's go to phase two. Demonic ideas implanted and tested. Now, people are pe- people, no matter where you live. It doesn't matter what country. It doesn't matter what generation. The human heart is the human heart, easily duped. And over centuries and millennia, the demonic realm has perfected the art of tricking people. How do we know this? Because there's a couple things, fear and propaganda, that they just use over and over and over and over again. It's almost as if they tested all different options to see what works on the masses. And these two, it doesn't matter where you are, it's like fear and propaganda. If you want to control the masses, figure out these two things because they work. But then phase three, this is where it requires people to participate. We'll call these the cultural elites, and they are incentivized. In Jesus' day, evil ideas and agendas were implanted in Herod, in Caesar, in the Pharisees. And here's how you get people to propagate your demonic propaganda. Power and money. That's why we call them cultural elites. Because through their money and through their power, they control culture. 
If you've ever wondered why many corporations are doing weird things right now, do you think that all the people on all the boards of those corporations believe what they're promoting? They don't care because they have power and they have money. The human, without the spirit of God, will sell its soul for power and for money. It will sell it to get it and 10x will do anything to protect it once it has it. That is the nature of the human soul apart from the spirit of God. You mean, you're gonna pay me to lie? Like millions of dollars? Sure. Like I can just live my life and go have houses all over the world and travel here and there and you're just gonna pay me to lie? That's easy. You do it once, you get the money, it's great, but then you're bought and you're owned. Don't, don't be deceived. Propaganda is real and it requires for an entire culture to move in any direction, particularly in the direction of evil, that you have a whole bunch of people in power, incentivized. It is a requirement. And if we're being honest, we see it all the time, don't we? We do. Phase four, crowds duped and conformed through fear and lies. The crowds, they take up that clarion call to be on the right side of history. This is not a new phrase, by the way. It's been used for a long time. And I would just say, like, uh, this is for the, the believer's discernment, Whenever you're on the right side of history, just be very careful. Because if the prince of the power of the air is really true and real and really actually controlling the, the meta narratives happening and the propaganda being pushed down, just be cautious. Double check yourselves. Open up the word of God and make sure that the values that are on the right side of, the hist of history are actually taught and trained and communicated clearly in the word of God. But here's the fifth phase. And this is the most emotional your loved ones succumb. And you're like, you know better. You know better. But fear is a powerful tool. When you ask someone to love Jesus more than their life, to risk their reputation or what they've worked their entire life for, it's a big ask. And that requires the Holy Spirit. And it's one of the most excruciating things to watch your family fall prey to fear and or propaganda. My second so what? Let's be a little more positive. Teach your children to discern evil. This is the easiest time in all of human history to teach your children to discern evil. Maybe except for the Holocaust. Or actually, I could find a few other times. But yeah, I, re I regret that statement now. There we go. But in our moment, we have the joy to raise a generation of fearless followers of Christ. And if you're going to do this, we need to actually show them that Jesus is more valuable than anything else. So we have the joy to put Jesus first in our lives, and then when we fail because we're sinners, we lean in the blood of Christ and we confess that we made something in our lives even temporarily more important than Jesus. And we preach the gospel to our kids and we pray for their salvation. Our grandkids, those you mentor, we pray because our kids need the Holy Spirit. They need the Holy Spirit. And so first thing we do is we train them to fear God above all. Uh, let me just plug something here. Uh, COVID has been nuts. So many children have been completely isolated and all they get is public education propaganda. And let me just tell you, like you have the opportunity to take your kids and put them in a Awana or Village Kids or the 5-6 or the 7-8 or get them into a small group or get them on a mission trip. I mean, anything that you can do to push them together with the people of God where the word of God is being implanted in their heart and soul, doggone it, take every opportunity 
opportunity. Youth leaders and children's leaders and small group leaders, mom and dad, they are not a threat, but they are an incredible asset to you in the discipleship of your children. Since my kids were little, we've been trying to find adults that we love and respect and saying, take our children out, have them, pour into them, speak life into them, and we love surrounding them with other people who love Jesus. And then what we do is we open up the Bible. We teach them to discern propaganda based on God's word. And we ask them a simple question. What does God's word say about that? What does God's word say about that? What does God's word say about that? And we teach them from a very young age that God's word is true, unshakable, from generation to generation, reliable. We answer their most difficult questions about its origins and where it came from and how it was made and some of the things that feel difficult in there. And and we train them from a young age. What does God's word say about this? What does the Bible say about this? And we show them the word of God as authority. And then they are more and more equipped to discern the propaganda. And if they have trusted in Jesus, then they have the ability to put Jesus above all other things that they might fear. Here's my third so what. I don't know who you are, where you come from, what brings you here. I have no idea. But my encouragement to you is to believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit who leads you into all truth. There are so many benefits of trusting in Christ. There's so many benefits of believing in Jesus for who he truly is, God in the flesh. First of all, all your sins are forgiven. That's a perk, right? You wake up every day with no condemnation. The Lord loves you as a good father. There's nothing that can change that. It's the most secure thing in your life. No matter how dumb you act, your salvation is never compromised. When you close your eyes for the last time, you open up, you see Jesus, and he doesn't condemn you, but he actually extends grace and forgiveness to you, and he says, fear not, puts his right hand on your shoulders, like that. All that's great. Right now, the promise of God is that every person who trusts in Jesus, you receive the Holy Spirit. Let me read to you what John says later about the Holy Spirit. Actually, Jesus is saying this. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. One of the greatest gifts of the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit leads us into truth and reality. And for us to be able to discern evil in this world, to see it for what it truly is, to not be controlled by its fear or its propaganda, the Holy Spirit is one of the greatest gifts in winning the battle against evil in your own heart, in your own life. And so we ask a simple question. Today, will you personally believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is God and died on the cross for your sins? Do you believe that God raised him from the dead? If you believe that, are you willing to ask him to forgive you and to save you? It doesn't matter what you've done, how bad you've been, how evil you've been. The blood of Christ has enough potency to cover all the sins of all people in the world who come to Jesus. It can cover you. And we're going to celebrate here in just a little while some people who have made the decision to trust in Christ. They're not great people. They're forgiven people. None of us are particularly wonderful, particularly on our worst days. But what we are in Christ is forgiven with the Holy Spirit being transformed one day at a time. So today, are you willing and ready to trust in Christ? If that's a decision you want to make today, I'm not going to make you run up here and jump up and down. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to just, when the service is over, I want you to tell somebody you came with that uh, I need to trust in Christ today, or I made a decision to trust in Christ today. 
And, and I'm telling you, we would love to rejoice with you. We'd love to celebrate. We'd love to help you take a next step. Maybe you're here and you're like, listen, not doing it, but I've got a lot of questions. I've never even thought about this before. My heart is being pulled to something, but I've got a handful of questions. And you know what we love to do? We love to talk honestly and candidly and honor all the biggest questions that you might have in your heart and your life about God, about Jesus, about the Bible, about salvation. And so we here honor your questions and we want you to go deeper with those. And so maybe you have some things that are standing between you and trusting in Christ. Uh, pursue that. Take responsibility because if Jesus is who he says he is, you can't put off that discussion. And we'd love to help you process that as we open up God's word and help you understand what the Bible says, the eternal word of God and truth says about reality. So I want to do is I want to take a moment and I want to pray for you and us. And then we are going to have an awesome opportunity to see uh, baptism and to celebrate what God is doing in individual hearts here at Village Church. So Lord, we just come before you and I am amazed at how your word and your spirit give us the ability to discern what is good and what is evil. Lord, as we spend time over the next few weeks unpacking this notion of what is evil, how does it look, how does it get into our hearts, Lord, would you, would you give us tender and open hearts? Would you give us eyes to see not just what's out there, but, but what's in our own hearts and lives? Would you regularly draw us to the cross where we see love personified and where grace and forgiveness is offered through faith in Jesus Christ? And God, I speak on behalf of every Christian in this room when I say thank you, thank you, thank you that we aren't saved by accruing good works and that when we trust in you, we can't be unsaved by bad works. Thank you for what is secure because you hold it. And that is our salvation and forgiveness. And so, Father, as we open up your word, as we look at this subject of evil and John, would you continually, by your spirit, help each one of us become more like Jesus? And if anybody's here just searching, trying to figure this out, if you are who you say you are, would you just with clarity reveal the truth of Jesus to their mind and to their heart. Lord, I know the evil one will want to get in the way and would you just hold him at bay and allow anybody searching to see Jesus for who he really is? Would you save? Would you show truth in reality? And so Lord, at this time as we celebrate baptisms, we give you 100% all glory, all honor for the salvation and the baptisms that we get to celebrate today. We do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen, Ville Church.